Now, I want to start a new series today uh, out of the book of Matthew regarding plundering the kingdom of the evil one. Uh, in Matthew 12, verse 29, one of the most important verses about dealing with evil and the ramifications of evil and how evil is dealt with the devil and his minions, Jesus says this, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Plunder means to take away, to destroy. So, so Jesus says you, you, can't, you can't plunder the strong man's house until the strong man is bound, i.e., Satan. You, you can't do that until Satan is bound. Bound. And so the question is, how is Satan bound? And we're going to look at a few verses about that, then go into Matthew chapter 8. So in John chapter 12, uh, the scripture says this, verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. He says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's talking about looking to the cross and his sacrifice for our sin. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Then the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it hath thundered. Others said, no, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come from, for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The authority and the power of Satan was cast out by the cross of Jesus. When as the Lamb of God, he shed his blood for our sin. He is Christ the victor, Christ the King. Colossians chapter 2 in your sermon guide says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In those, the day of the New Testament, when somebody was crucified, what they had done was nailed to the cross as they died before they were crucified. A thief, extortioner, murderer, whatever. But this passage says that something else has been nailed over any accusation that could ever be nailed against us. And that is sins forgiven, shame cast out, burden bore by the Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins. He took this and he nailed it to the cross. And as he did that, he disarmed the authorities and the powers, triumphing over them in Christ. So what plunders the house of the devil? Answer, the glory of the cross and the worship of Jesus and the lordship of Christ in our lives. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 2 
In, in Hebrews chapter two, there is a, a statement about the, the work of the Lord and it says this, starting in verse eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, physically lower on the earth, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. Verse 14, in your worship guide. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And, and, and so I look at these passages and I say, how was Satan cast out? Well, by the cross. How is our sin canceled, nailed over by a new statement, by the cross? How is the devil disarmed by the cross in the worship of Jesus? How is he put to open shame by the cross? How, how, is, how is the one who held the the, the, the fear of death disarmed by the cross. Death is still hard. But, but, but the authority or the power of death, the craving fear of death is gone because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How, how is our slavery cast aside by the cross? He has become, Hebrews chapter 2, our covering for sin, our propitiation. And, and so the answer, how is a devil defeated? By the cross of Jesus. That's why Martin Luther the reformer who died in 1546 had a very keen understanding of the evil world and of the devil. And Luther wrote one of the most famous hymns of Christendom, one of my favorite hymns, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. And one stanza goes like this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. One little word shall fail him. And the little word is the word of the cross, the name of Jesus. It defeats the adversary. So, so you, you read this and Satan's kingdom has been plundered by the glory of the cross. And yet, hear me. First Peter says this, that Satan is a roaring lion. There are, he's, he's, he, he's defeated, but he's exercising guerrilla warfare. That Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're not unaware of his devices or his schemes. He's a schemer. He's a liar, Jesus says, and the father of lies. Revelation says he's the one who accuses the brethren and brings shame before us. In this whole area is... A wonderful illustration was given by a man named Oscar Kuhlman. He said that, that, that it's like the difference between D-Day and Victory in Europe Day. On June the 6th, 1944, at Normandy, there was a vast army that got a foothold on the beach of France. And they started fighting the Nazis. And they pushed them back. And 
they pushed them further and further into France and more and more ships came with more and more men and more and more tanks and more and more airplanes were flying overhead. And everybody in the Allied Supreme Command and everybody in the German army who was in leadership knew that from that day forward, Germany was done. It was over. It was done. And yet a few months later, there was something called the Battle of the Bulge when Hitler, in a maniacal move, tried to break through to, to, to Belgium. And he had a wild fanciful scheme that would never have worked anyway. So, so, but the Germans kept fighting until 11 months later when they surrendered in May of 1945. We're, we're living between D-Day, I understand, and Victory in Europe Day. There's still activity. Satan is defeated by the cross, but there's ongoing warfare. So I'm, we're going to look in, in Matthew at certain passages as we go through about four chapters of Matthew between now and Easter, and how the Lord Christ affirmed the fighting of darkness, and how Christ fought darkness, and how we're to do it. And I, I hope it's going to be instructive. I think it's very important. And, and so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, the, the passages in the worship guide. Listen to the word of God. When Christ had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward. Stop. A centurion was a leader in the Roman army who, who commanded at least a hundred men, a centurion, or a thousand or up to two thousand men. So this man was a leader of men, an officer. A centurion, a Roman man, came forward to him appealing to Christ. Lord, he said, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, when he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, I'm going to give you three points, three statements about this passage. Number one, the centurion was a man of desperation. Desperation. He, he said, teacher, my servant, who he dearly loved, is laying at home suffering terribly. And, and somewhere he had heard about Christ, maybe heard him teach, maybe seen him do miracles. And he said, you say the word and he'll be healed. What's amazing about this passage, I, it, this is mind-boggling. This Roman came from a background who believed in multiple gods. He believed that Caesar was God. He believed all these gods. There was no supreme God. And, 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 and he had no concept of that. He had a very limited worldview, limited knowledge. And yet he was trusting the teacher, Jesus, to do something that was unique and glorious and wonderful. Because... He was desperate. He was a man of desperation. The New City Catechism 
Question 38, it's a new catechism. What is prayer? I love, I love this answer. Prayer is a pouring out of your heart to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. The part I like especially is it's a pouring out of your heart to God. It's a pleading with God. It is pouring your heart out. It is a, a seeking after God. It is really, I think, prayer and seeking God is pushing against the darkness and pushing against the status quo. It is saying, Lord, break in. Now, I like to pray the Psalms. And yet, there are 58 Psalms known as Psalms of Lamentation. 42 are, are yeah, 40, 40, yeah, 42 are individual lamentations and 16 are lamentations for a community worship service. And really, the, the basic issue in every one of these 58 Psalms is, God, where are you? God, show up. God, we need you. We are pouring out our heart to you in desperation. I was reading one of the Psalms of Lamentation, written by David, is Psalm 12, and, and it's, it's a hard psalm. And if you're in a, a, a group and somebody says, what's your favorite psalm? And somebody says Psalm 12, you know, they're in a funk. They're, they're in a bad place. Because Psalm 12 is a hard psalm and it doesn't end well. It, it just, it's, it's a lamentation. It's really a psalm to be prayed when scoundrels are in authority. And ungodly people are in authority. It starts off like this. It says, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. He's saying, Lord, where are you? These people that are in authority, are, they're liars. They're, they're deceivers. And it ends like this, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. They're just prowling. And we said, Lord, where are you? This is desperation. And as I read this and I thought about this and looked at this text, I said, only desperate people pray. Only desperate people wait upon God. Only desperate people live in brokenness. Only desperate people fight the good fight of faith. I was just in North Africa. I taught at a regional seminary. Men and women from five to six countries is how you parcel it out. And in those six countries, there, is, there are countries with, with no freedom of worship at all. I mean, it's, these people face, their churches are burned. Their churches are defaced, and they go to prison, and worse. And then in a couple of countries, there is just a little bit of freedom. I mean, just it's so little. I mean, uh, in this one country, this man that made this request in a prayer group, uh, this country is a country that two years ago, somebody went to the beach from ISIS and killed 39 people. The year before that, somebody from ISIS killed 19 Japanese tourists in a museum in their capital city. So this is not exactly what you would call um, an open country at all. So we're praying. And I'm getting translation 
wonderful people. And this guy from this country says, pray that God would bring persecution to our country because we've grown too comfortable. And I went, are you kidding me? I've prayed for a lot of things. I have never prayed for persecution to fall upon us. Maybe we should. Because he knew, we know, only desperate people go hard for God. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm with these people, and uh, we have, I'm leading a prayer service. And there's three dear men from a, a country that is incredibly poor, and, and they've lived hard lives, and they're, they're godly guys. And there's one guy's named Boyera, and Boyera's 55 or 56, and he could pass for 70. He's had a hard life. And so as we're praying, I said, I said men, uh, could, you, uh, could you please pray for our country? I said, we, we, we need the Lord. We need the church to be revived. And I asked Boyer to pray. And I don't speak Arabic at all other than a few sentences. But he got up and he prayed. And there's a lot of hallelujahs and amens going on. And he prayed the heavens down. I expected to land in Atlanta and see revival breaking out everywhere. I mean, Boyer was the guy. But only desperate people, church, go hard for Christ. And then they're desperate, number two, because of a correct personal inventory. This centurion said, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, marveled at his faith. And he said, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere else. And he said, I tell you the truth, that, that those of you who have been raised in this tradition where you have received the promises of God and you're the called out people of God, you're the Jewish nation, many people come from afar and they'll sit at the banquet hall, but the sons of the kingdom, i.e. you Jews who don't believe are going to be cast out. And that did not make Jesus popular. But this centurion had a, a, a correct personal inventory. And Jesus marveled at it. And, and I, I'm, I'm not worthy. And this man, I, I marvel, I marvel at this man. This man had no Old Testament scripture that taught him in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. He was raised in the context that we are all gods. He didn't have the scripture, Psalm 51, where David prays with broken uh, a repentant heart, Lord, have mercy upon me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Forgive my sin. He, he, he had none of that. And yet, he had a correct personal inventory. And we, we will never fight the good fight or be desperate as long as we live in a, a culture that continually tells us how, how wonderful we are. There's a writer named Marianne Williamson. I read this book years ago, Return to Love. Just read through it, and I think she's going to run for president. That's the word I've heard. But she says in this book, she's, she, she's a lapsed Jew who, who says that, that Jesus wasn't anything special. He was just an extension of the mind of God, just like you and I are extensions of the mind of God. So she's a, 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 a monist, a new age guru. She may be a very fine woman, but that's where she comes from epistemologically. But she says in this book, she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that really frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, you are you. Who are you not to be so? 
And I, I got me honest, I read that and I got this morning, I looked in the mirror and said, who are you? Not to be uh, fabulous and talented and gorgeous and brilliant. Go for it. As long as you hear that baloney, you're never going to seek after God. Let me tell you something. Desperation comes from a correct personal inventory, like the centurion. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Desperate people. I, I love to do weddings. I think weddings are fun. I think the parties afterwards are, are fun. Uh, people getting married in the Lord, which is a good thing, and I want to see more and more of it with more and more people having babies. And just to decide, you know that our birth replacement order has to be 2.1 children per couple, and now we're at 1.7 as a culture. Our birth replacement order has declined. Boom, done that. Marriages have done that. We need to stand up and say, man, God's plan is get married and have babies. I hope you're listening to me. Yeah. Get married. Have babies. Raise them in the Lord. You people, all you singles over there in the worship center, get married. Come on. Have babies. Subdue the earth. Get a quiver full. Anyway, so I do, I do, I do these weddings, and, and the, the, you know, the people, the, the, the bride and the groom are just beautiful, and they're nervous, and they've gone through some wonderful counseling that our church gives. The people have been doing this for 25 and 30 years, and, and, and they're standing there, and I want to, sometimes I just want to reach out and grab them by the shoulder and say, please, I, I know you're nervous, and you're not hearing a word I'm saying because you're nervous. But understand that you're pledging to love each other until you die. And you're pledging to love someone who is a sinner that at times will drive you crazy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Here we go, brother. Go for it. You're going to have a bad day, but that's beside the point. So... And, I, so, and I'm saying, do, 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 do you realize that apart from the grace of Christ, either your marriage is going to end up failing or you're going to live together in a peaceful, quasi-state of indifference because financially it's not good to divorce, or you're going to have a marriage that flourishes. The only way you're going to have point number three is through the grace of Jesus. I mean, did you realize that? Or, or, or I'll read 1 Thessalonians 4. Where Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, like he says to us, this is God's will for your sanctification, that you possess your body in holiness and purity, not in passionate lust like the Gentiles who don't even know God. And I'm going to people, do you realize in this runaway culture of, 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 of open sexuality that this is impossible apart from the grace of Jesus? You can't do it. I mean, you just can't. Or I'll talk to grandparents. I mean, I love grandparents. I am one. And, and grandparents will say something like this. It's fun being a grandparent because it's a do-over. So what do you mean? So, well, now we can avoid the errors we made the first time around. And I'm thinking in my mind, no, you won't. You're still going to screw up as a grandparent. You're still going to make mistakes. And your only hope as a parent or a grandparent is that the grace and the mercy and the kindness of Jesus will so shape your character that it will eclipse the crud in your life. And, and I, I just, I look at 
I look at you guys, and I think only people who are desperate go hard for Jesus. Like, like this centurion who had limited knowledge, limited. Jesus is a good teacher, did miracles. We say he is the son of God who is eternal, who made the heavens and the earth. And we have a personal relationship with him because of the cross. And he's praying for us in heaven and he's poured his Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, speaking of desperation, I'm going to take a side road. I, I taught the course in Tunisia to these men and a handful of women on preaching and teaching. And I played with them to preach through books of the Bible. It's called expository preaching because you deal with issues. Or to preach through sections of books of the Bible. And, and one man said, what if you want to say something that's not in the text? I said, well, you can always talk about application. That's always, you know, you're saving green. You say, well, but we have application. So, so this is kind of an application, but it's really not, but I want you to bear with me. Regarding desperation, uh, I, I read the news while I was overseas, and the last couple of weeks have been uh, very interesting in our country. On the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which happened in 1973, the New York legislative body passed a bill that made abortion uh, absolutely legal until the very moment of birth. So you can take a child out of the womb, uh, and as that was passed into law, the legislative body rose in standing ovation, and certain lights went on in New York City, and people were applauding. Followed up by the statement by the governor of Virginia, one of my favorite states, that really was the statement basically of infanticide. Basically, you can just kill a child. I, uh, he tried to backtrack some, but when you read, read what he said, it is startling. Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska said, if he really believes that, he should resign from his office in disgrace. And ben Sass is right. So I just want to address this issue um, with you, especially those of you who are younger, and just talk about it for a few minutes, so bear with me. I go back to 1980. I'm in seminary. I'm, I'm a college pastor at a church in north, north of Dallas, and I've gotten involved in the pro-life movement. I've gone to some seminars, and I've studied it, and so some of the college students at this university where I was said, we want to put on a seminar that deals with the abortion issue. Will you be the speaker that represents the pro-life movement? And I said, sure, I'll be glad to. And there was a good exchange. There was a fairly good number of students, and I, th I thought it was a good night. The, the representative for the pro-choice movement was a very attractive, gracious, caring woman from Planned Parenthood, Dallas. And so she came in, and we talked, and, and she made this comment several times. And if you're old enough to remember this, this was the standard line in 1980. The standard line was this by the pro-choice people. We would never, ever, ever, ever agree with abortion after 12 weeks because at 12 weeks, that fetus becomes a human being. And, 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 and she, was, she was very clear on that. And I said, well, here, I said here's my problem. I, I said... Um, I think that apart from medical evidence, we have to assume that the fetus is life. Life begins at conception. And of course, I was basing it on the scripture, but since it was a secular audience, I wasn't, trying, I wasn't going to quote scripture. I just said, you know, we need to think about this. 
And uh, so we agreed to disagree and amicably left. And so go forward now to 1984. There's a man named uh, Bernard Nathanson, who's an obstetrician, who uh, has been at the forefront of the pro-choice movement, helped establish NARAL, which is a pro-choice group. And Bernard Nathanson, as the ultrasound came out, uh, was astounded that the fetus responded to stimuli. In fact, he produced a movie called The Silent Scream, that at a certain point when the fetus is taken out, there is a cry, he said, of pain. And he said, based upon new ultrasound medical technology, 1984, Bernard Nathanson went from being pro-choice to pro-life. And since then, every medical discovery has validated the reality of life in the womb, everyone. So that's 1984. Bill Clinton becomes president, and he gives an address or an interview where he says the famous line, I want abortions to be safe, legal, and rare. Remember that? Okay, safe, legal, and rare. And, 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 and I'm, to, be, to be fair to people whose worldview is that the ultimate experience is autonomous self-expression in the area of sexuality or, or living. And, and in order to have autonomy before, uh, I, I must have the ultimate ability to decide if life is life and to have full sexual expression. I, un I understand that. I think that's a desperately wrong worldview. Desperately wrong. But, 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 but that's where they live. There's no God to whom I will answer, therefore I call all the shots. Now, so but now we've come to the point, and this is what breaks my heart, is that the people that are pro-choice, and if you're pro-choice, I'm so glad you're here, and I'd love to talk to you. I think this is a biblical issue. Have gone from saying safe, legal, and rare to where they want you to celebrate the taking of life. They want you to affirm and stand up and applaud. And their website said there are women who are giving testimonies to how abortion has made me a better person. That is a lie from the pit of hell, by the way. That's just a lie. And so we've gone from we would never take a child after 12 weeks to, to, to a governor of a major state, Virginia, advocating basically infanticide. And that's happened, that's happened since 1980. And you may, if you're young, you think, well, yeah, that's, that's right before Rome fell to the barbarians. But that, that hasn't been that long ago. And so I, I would plead for you to be people of prayer. And, and I, I celebrate, I celebrate the fact that, that there are people who are graciously pushing back against the darkness. Um, years ago, um, I, I had a friend, and there was a movie that came out called Schindler's List, which is an incredibly powerful, true movie, great movie about a man named Oscar Schindler who saved hundreds and hundreds of Jews from the Nazi gas chambers. And it's a powerful music, and the musical score is breathtakingly beautiful. And I said to him, are you going to go see Schindler's List? And he said this. He said, I am tired of going to see movies about Nazis killing Jews. No. And I thought, hmm. Um, church, I don't like to talk about this stuff. But, but I need to watch Schindler's List 
I need to watch Hotel Rwanda about the 1994 uprising where one million people were butchered in Rwanda out of a population of eight million. I need to watch The Boy in the Striped Pajamas or The Music Box or, 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 I, or I need to watch 12 Years a Slave or Amistad about the horror of chattel slavery in this country to be aware of that, that, that these things have existed and do exist and that I've got to keep a tender conscience. When I stand up and applaud the death of life in the womb as a wonderful right, something dies inside of me and you and our country. So I, 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 I celebrate people who, who push against that darkness. I celebrate the fact that, that we have a, a wonderful adoption ministry in this church and foster parent ministry in this church. And I am so thankful that, that we have a friends ministry and that today PCA and the music ministry worked to free up a room and a room was refurbished and, 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 and taken care of, and now our friends ministry have their own room where these children who are special needs children can be loved and cared for. And let me tell you something, that gladness the heart of God. And it, this is, this is, so this is their day to celebrate. And this is the t-shirt. This is it. Friends ministry. In fact, I'm going to put this on. Why not? I hope I can do this. And without tearing down my mic and also messing up my hair. I spent hours getting my hair fixed this morning. <laughs> so go for it. I mean, I, we should celebrate these ministries and be glad and, and be thankful for, 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 for this. Listen, push against the darkness. But only desperate people do this. And I say to those of us who are getting old, listen, don't give up the fight. It's easy to get old and become callous and cynical. Don't go there. You fight hard till you breathe your final breath and meet Jesus. Be much more concerned about these things than, I don't know, your blood pressure or whatever. Us old people get concerned with. Very quickly, my time's number, very quickly. Not only was there a desperation and personal inventory, but number three, he recognized supreme authority. This is beautiful. This man who was a, a Roman centurion who had no understanding of Messiah King, no understanding of the prophecies. No, he, he said, Lord, I'm not worthy, but you say the word and it'll happen. He recognized supreme authority. Do you? And I read this and I think, what do you want the king of all glory, who's not just a good teacher, but God in the flesh, what do you want him to do in your life as you seek him? What do you want him to accomplish in you and your brokenness and your pain or your joy and your happiness? What do you want him to do? And, 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 and be a person who asks God, God, do this in my life. Do this in me. Change me. Push me. Make me the person you called me to be in this area. Let me take the gospel to the neighbors and the nations. Let me live for you. Let, let, let me order my life under your lordship. You have supreme authority. I come to you. May God give us the grace to live that way. Let's pray. Lord, on this uh, day, we are thankful that this Roman centurion caused you to marvel. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that you would 
So work in us and through us that we'd be people who, who really sense desperation. I mean, we, we, we think we're okay, but we don't realize that we're just one dumb decision away from blowing it, that we are one breath away from eternity. So God, we plead for you to give us a desperate heart, and we pray that you give us a correct personal inventory. They would buy the, the, the hobgoblin message of the culture that says you are wonderful, you're an extension of the mind of God, you're, you're, you are a god or a goddess, what a bunch of baloney. But they would say with this centurion, Lord, as I stand in the presence of the, the teacher Jesus of Nazareth, much less the King of kings and Lord of lords, I am not worthy, not worthy. And then let us ask you, the one who has supreme authority to work in our lives. Oh God, move us, I pray. Teach us in Jesus' name, amen.